President Joe Biden signs an emergency funding bill to keep the American government running while excluding new aid for Ukraine. He accuses Republicans of putting the country in a, quote, manufactured crisis. Ballots are being counted in Slovakia's parliamentary elections with preliminary results putting the party that pledges to end military support to Ukraine in the lead. And on this first day of October, Nigeria celebrates 63 years of freedom from British colonial rule, with government officials praising the progress since achieving independence. We are all agreed as Nigerians to live in a united, peaceful and prosperous country. You're watching RT International. I'm Rachel Rubel, live from the Russian capital. Well, the U.S. president has signed an emergency funding bill to keep the lights on in Washington. Biden accused Republicans of putting America in the precarious position of excluding new support for Ukraine. But I want to be clear, we should have never been in this position in the first place. Just a few months ago, Speaker McCarthy and I reached a budget agreement to avoid precisely this type of manufactured crisis. For weeks, extreme House Republicans tried to walk away from that deal by demanding drastic cuts that would have been devastating for millions of Americans. They failed. While the Speaker and the overwhelming majority of Congress have been steadfast in their support for Ukraine, there is no new funding in this agreement to continue that support. We cannot under any circumstances allow American support for Ukraine to be interrupted. I fully expect the Speaker will keep his commitment to the people of Ukraine and secure passage of the support needed to help Ukraine at this critical moment. It appears that a deal has been reached. Joe Biden has signed a bill into law extending government funding, so the government will not be shut down. 47 more days have been bought by this last-minute deal that prevented a government shutdown. Now, this is a deal that was reached in the U.S. House of Representatives, then later approved by the Senate, and it was a last-minute deal. And as we observed in the House of Representatives in the lead-up to the final vote, things got pretty heated. Here's what Republican leader Kevin McCarthy and Marjorie Taylor Greene had to say about how heated things got on Capitol Hill in the lead up to that final vote in the House of Representatives. It's all right that you put America first. It's all right if Republican and Democrats join together to do what is right. What the Senate wanted to do was focus on Ukraine in front of America. I understand our responsibilities, but I'm going to put America first. Ukraine is not the 51st state. Joe Biden treats Ukraine like it's the 51st state. The Senate treats Ukraine like it's the 51st state, including Mitch McConnell. He's one of the worst ones. And you've got the Democrats in the House pulling a motion to adjourn, pitching an absolute fit, and apparently pulling a fire alarm over there in the Cannon Building because it does not fund Ukraine. What Marjorie Taylor Greene was just referring to there is that apparently Democrat Jamal Bowman, a member of Congress representing New York, uh, he pulled the fire alarm 
in a congressional office building. Now, many believe this was an attempt to cause some kind of security situation or evacuation on Capitol Hill and prevent the vote from taking place that would pass this budget that does not include funding for Ukraine. And this indicates a lot of desperation on the part of the foreign policy establishment in Washington, D.C. Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, a few days prior to the government shutdown crisis, uh, he voiced his deep concerns, his belief that if Ukraine didn't get this money, it would lead to a full Russian victory. Here's what he said. I think we're at a moment now where those who support the continued defense on freedom's frontier in Ukraine need to stand up and make the case for this in the intermediate term and over the longer term. This is ultimately about us sustaining our support for Ukraine for the long term, for years, not just months, at a different level, but nonetheless for years. We are committed to making sure that we muster the support in both parties and in both houses to get that done. Apparently, the strategy and goal of the Biden administration is to continue funding and prolonging the war for many years. However, it appears that political discourse within the United States has dramatically shifted. You'll recall that just a few months ago, uh, Zelensky was in the halls of Congress getting the standing ovations in joint sessions of both houses. But his recent visit for the U.N. General Assembly got no such red carpet or fanfare. Uh, Zelensky was not granted the opportunity to address Congress, and opposition to funding of Ukraine has increased, as we just now see the passage of this extension budget for 47 additional days, preventing a government shutdown, but no new money for Ukraine. Uh, this is quite a dramatic change. And it looks like within the power structure of the United States, the forces that have opposed continued funding and sending of weapons to Kiev are getting new recruits to join their ranks and expanding their influence. And opposition uh, to the continued U.S. funding and prolonging of the conflict is growing. That would be what many would uh, would you know conclude, having look at, looked at what just happened here. Even though the Biden administration wasn't happy about it, in order to keep the government from shutting down, they were forced uh, to sign a deal and sign a spending bill with no new money for Ukraine. Well, earlier we spoke to a former senior security policy analyst at the Pentagon, Michael Maloof. He highlighted the political rivalry between the Democrats and the Republicans, suggesting the cross-aisle feud is set to continue. There was so much opposition among Republicans, and there was such desperation to get a bill, uh, for, for McCarthy in particular, to get that bill uh, passed by the House that uh, even the Democrats uh, decided, well, uh, we can always re return to the uh, Ukraine uh, re refunding and uh, uh, issue and, and debate that uh, at another time. They were under extreme tension to uh, pass uh, a, con a continuing, at least something that would continue keeping the government open. You have a Republican-led uh, House now. And you before, when he was here addressing Congress, waving the Ukrainian flag on the, on the floor of the House of Representatives before a joint session, which people were just outraged by that. Only the American flag should be in that ch chamber. Uh, and that, but that was under Democrats. Now we're seeing uh, an entirely different uh, page having been turned, and it's going to be even 
uh, more critical as the month, weeks and months go by. It's only four, as, uh, as Caleb says, uh, for about uh, 47 more days, and then we're going to do this all over again. <laughs> As a new day dawns, Slovakia may be headed in a new direction. Voting has completed in the country's parliamentary elections. While the ballots are still being tallied, preliminary results put the Social Democrats of the Smear Party, which ran on ending military support for Ukraine, in the lead. Earlier, I spoke with RT correspondent Charlotte Dubensky for the latest. The polls closed last night and we are now 98% just over in terms of the votes being counted and we are getting a sense of what the political map could look like in Slovakia. We're expecting the full official results in the next few hours. Now it's been an election uh, that Brussels has been watching intently and I think they probably were biting their nails overnight as it emerged that Samir were ahead despite those early exit polls suggesting that progressive Slovakia had topped the poll and that's because Robert Fico's party smear has campaigned on a, a more pro-Russian platform. He has said there'll be no more armament to Ukraine. He said that sanctions against Russia are illogical and, in fact, has talked about those biting back in Europe and causing inflation here in Slovakia. Uh, on the other side were the progressive Slovakia party. They're seen as pro-Brussels, pro-NATO, and they had really campaigned on a platform of continuing to send weapons to Ukraine. After the exit vote polls came out on Saturday evening, this is what the leader of Progressive Slovakia had to say. I want to state here clearly that whatever will be the outcome of this election, Progressive Slovakia, we will accept it with humility. We have done everything we could with all our knowledge and with all of our energy. And now everything is only in the hands of the voters. But this does look like a resounding win for Smear, who are ahead in the polls all the way. We are hoping to hear from Robert Fico later on Sunday about that win and to get a sense of who he'll be looking to reach out to to make a coalition government for the next government in Slovakia. Charlotte, I'm wondering what's the general sentiment there among the Slovak people? Well, it's been a very polarized campaign, pretty much polarized and divided on every issue that's been discussed, whether that was Ukraine, whether that was migration, whether that was LGBTQ rights, uh, because the parties, the two main parties, had very differing perceptions on what they feel is better. Smear, who topped the campaign, have uh, campaigned on traditional values of mother and father and really advocated against further rights for LGBTQ uh, individuals and possibly even rolling back those rights. But really, Ukraine was the big issue. And that's surprising because it's not a domestic issue. However, Ukraine is a neighboring country to Slovakia. And really, there has been a discontentment over the last year that's been growing in the way that Slovakia's last government had been arming Ukraine. This is what people have been telling us on the streets. I will vote for a party that is for peace, that supports solving things in other ways than by senselessly sending weapons. Changing of the incumbent government is of most importance to me. I was very dissatisfied with it because I felt the impact of sanctions on the people and don't agree with this government's policy. In general, the work of the Slovak Republic's government is terrible. The war in Ukraine certainly didn't help us or the whole of Europe, and the sanctions against Russia are absolutely useless and totally disastrous for Europe. 
And those sentiments have really translated into the votes for the parties that campaigned against sending further military aid to Ukraine. When you look at who those parties are, they make up around 92 seats out of 150 seats in the Slovak uh, National Council. That's around 61% of the seats. So you really get a sense of where people's priorities are moving and also uh, the likelihood of where those coalition partners will come from to possibly create that new party in government, which will be led by Robert Fitzo. Nigerians are celebrating 63 years of independence from the British Empire this Sunday. Here's what Nigeria's government secretary had to say about the significance of the day and what it means for the people. We are all agreed as Nigerians to live in a united, peaceful, and prosperous country as one people, one destiny in spite of our diversity. This is very critical. Without this interest, no nation can move forward. This Abuja World Press Conference marks the beginning of events scheduled all week to commemorate Nigeria's 63rd independence anniversary celebration on October the 1st. Secretary to Nigeria's government, George Akume, hosted the conference. He said, this year's commemoration is particularly important at a time when some parts of Africa are seeing a wave of coups. Akuma said Nigeria has witnessed an unbroken democratic record since 1999 and has recorded seamless and peaceful transitions from one government to another. But the government secretary said this year's celebration will be low-key, citing Nigeria's economic problems that have been exacerbated by the removal of the fuel subsidy in May, as well as the impact of the global economic downturn. He said the government is working to provide relief packages to reduce the suffering of citizens, including the provision of gas-powered buses to ease transport. Many nations have gone through these dry moments, and they have come out stronger, stronger because leadership, was committed and the citizenry also appreciated what leadership was doing. And I think this is where we are today. With a leadership that is so determined, very patriotic, knowing where to take us. He also said the government is engaging with labor unions in order to address concerns for the well-being of all Nigerian workers. The workers' union last week threatened to embark on an indefinite strike if the government does not reverse its economic policies, especially the scrapping of the fuel subsidy. Akume promised authorities will improve food security, guarantee an end to poverty, improve security, economic growth and job creation. Other events still to come include a presidential address, national prayers and a military parade. Timothy Obiezu, RT, Abuja, Nigeria.
In western France, protesters took to the streets and squared off with law enforcement after government funding cuts resulted in the death of an infant. Demonstrators were met by riot police outside a local administration building. In an apparent symbolic move to show a state of siege, residents rolled out a replica of a medieval-era catapult. Fires were also set on the streets as people demanded the local hospital work around the clock. However, local authorities claim there's no funding for the night shift. The unrest broke out after the death of a six-month-old girl who was unable to get proper care due to a shortage of specialists, according to locals. The unrest comes on the heels of France's 2024 finance bill, which was presented to the Council of Ministers earlier this week. The budget focuses on environmental transition and security development, with funds allocated to hire more government officials and security personnel. Paris is also planning to save millions of euros by eliminating gas and electricity subsidies for the nation. Adding a pledge to spend over 400 billion euros from 2024 to 2030 to modernize its military and step up assistance to Ukraine. Earlier, we heard from attorney Philippe Deville, who says he says even though the economic situation in France is getting spiraling, the government continues to spend its resources on Ukraine. The fail of government and of of France in general, because in fact we have the most uh, important fiscalization pressure on this country and the fate of the state to prevail good uh, uh, public services like hospital, education, and even secure. So the people are, are upset and it's going worse and worse. The French government um, is helping uh, war financially and with weapons. Okay, this is a political decision from President Macron and the government. But there is no vote in the parliament to, to uh, allow this kind of help. There is discussion, but no votes. And they don't ask to the French citizen if they want to go further in the helping the war in Ukraine, Ukrainian uh, army and Ukrainian government. So I think it is a lack of democracy for a country like France, giving a lot of lessons in the world. So uh, I think the people are against this war and we are paying very strongly. And in fact, France, it's the uh, middle class and labor class are, are, are uh, now in pauperization uh, uh, process. Over the past week, the Canadian Prime Minister has found himself in troubled waters for hosting a Nazi collaborator in the country's parliament and giving him a standing ovation. Following the scandal, Justin Trudeau seemed to apologize for everyone else causing the uproar while trying to stay out of the, of the spotlight himself. However, the opposition isn't buying his sidestep. Take personal responsibility for this shame and personally apologize on behalf of himself. On behalf of all of us in this house, I would like to present unreserved apologies for what took place on Friday. Finally take personal responsibility. The outgoing speaker took responsibility and resigned, as was the right thing to do. When will he start taking ownership for his failures and apologize for them all? While the leader of the opposition concentrates on personal attacks on me, I will stay focused on Canadians, on building more affordable housing, on delivering 
things like the grocery benefit, on delivering childcare at $10 a day. Under this Prime Minister, a Nazi was honoured in this place. The question is, is who speaks for Canada? And if it's not this Prime Minister, isn't it time for Canadians to have one who will? But I think they're also interested in seeing who's trying to make partisan hay out of this. Who's trying to look for gains out of what was obviously a terrible, terrible mistake. The earlier apology of Trudeau contained a claim that no one in the parliament was aware of Hunka's past during the tribute, a statement widely doubted by Moscow, which also expressed its astonishment that the PM made an apology to Holocaust victims while at the same time continuing to sponsor Ukraine, which has incorporated neo-Nazi regimens into its military. The Russian ambassador to Canada has said Russia may seek the extradition of Yaroslav Hunka while expecting a more sincere apology to those insulted. The so-called apology delivered by Prime Minister Trudeau in the House of Commons is not an apology at all, and these words are not enough. I believe that despite the deep controversies between Moscow and Ottawa amid the current geopolitical situation, the government and Parliament of Canada are obliged to find the courage and apologize to all Russians and to the Russian community of Canada for the shameful incident that the whole world witnessed on September 22nd. Poland is on the same page with Russia regarding this, also considering an extradition plea for the SS veteran. Warsaw is set to investigate whether the 98-year-old Nazi collaborator is wanted for crimes committed against Polish nationals. Let's take a look back at where this all started to spiral for Ottawa. In front of a packed House of Commons chamber, the elder ethnic Ukrainian who served in a notorious unit of the Waffen-SS was hailed as a Ukrainian and Canadian hero who had fought against, quote, the Russians in World War II. That was in reference to the Red Army, which incidentally had battled the Third Reich with Canada as its ally. Following the scandal, the Canadian immigration minister stated it's time to come to terms with the country's shadowy past, where doors were open for those who terrorized Europe. Canada has a really dark history with Nazis in Canada. There was a point in our history when it was easier to get in as a Nazi than it was as a Jewish person. I think that's a history we have to reconcile. And it doesn't seem a lot has changed through time. Back in 2020, in the Canadian city of Oakville, a police investigation was opened after the words Nazi war monument were spray-painted on a landmark honoring those who served with the Galicia SS Division, a particularly barbaric Nazi unit based in Ukraine. Members have been accused of killing over a million people during the Second World War. Law enforcement classified the incident as a hate crime, raising yet more questions about Canada's priorities. Following that standing ovation to a Nazi collaborator in the Canadian Parliament, the Jewish community is pushing Ottawa to open the books and stop giving cover to what they claim are war criminals in the country. It's now time for Ottawa to not only release the unredacted files related to the Duchenne Commission, but to also address the stark reality that there are still former Nazis with blood on their hands living in Canada. A long, dark history of state-sanctioned asylum for Nazis fleeing justice is coming to light in Canada, with a Jewish advocacy group demanding the release of government documents containing a treasure trove of details about these war criminals from the Third Reich living in the country. At this point, Ottawa's only given the public a peek at the full scale of Canada's cozying up to these Nazis. 
Under the 1967 extradition agreement between Canada and Israel, as it now stands, no request for extradition based on Nazi war crimes can be entertained. However, the second part of this 1986 report is being kept a big secret. 600 pages worth of materials that illustrate how the Nazis were able to flee to Canada in the first place. But this is only the latest episode in a long history of dancing around the truth that goes as far back as when these Nazis first began making their way to Canada. Take 98-year-old Ukrainian Nazi Yaroslav Hunka, whose public honoring in Parliament led to the resignation of the House Speaker and calls to strike Hunka's recognition from public record. I would like to ask for unanimous consent to adopt the following motion. That notwithstanding any standing order, special order, or usual practice of the House, the recognition made by the Speaker of the House of an individual present in the galleries during the joint address to Parliament by His Excellency Volodymyr Zelensky be struck from the appendix of the House of Commons debates of Thursday, September 21, 2023, and from any House multimedia recording. Deleting the text of the Speaker's words from Hansard would have only one purpose, to try and forget what happened, to wash the Clean. This guy served in the Galician Waffen SS during World War II, a division that committed numerous atrocities and was declared a criminal organization at the Nuremberg trials. Several thousand of the group's members fled to Canada after World War II, but not a single one of them has ever been prosecuted there. It's not like Ottawa didn't know Hunka and his buddies were Nazis either. Back in 2007, the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress in Toronto honored a long list of Waffen-SS veterans, including Hunka, at an official ceremony that, of course, the Ukrainian ambassador saw fit to attend. Several years earlier, Hunka represented the same Ukrainian-Canadian Congress at the 8th Ukrainian World Congress in Kiev. He even ran in Ukraine's parliamentary elections in 1994 and was made an honorary citizen of the town of Berezhany, where Ukrainian collaborators launched a pogrom in World War II and the Nazis nearly exterminated the entire Jewish population there. These are the people that make up what Canada's immigration minister called a really dark history. Canada has a really dark history with Nazis in Canada. There was a point in our history when it was easier to get in as a Nazi than it was as a Jewish person. I think that's a history we have to reconcile. As of 2023, Canada is among the most reluctant Western nations when it comes to prosecuting these war criminals, with a number of confirmed Nazis living comfortably in retirement as naturalized citizens. When Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland was asked, uh, is someone going to investigate that? She answered, thoughtful steps would be taken. There are calls by Bene Breath to reopen a report by the Duchesne Commission so that Canadians can know how many veterans who fought with the Nazis are here in our country. Um, will the government do so? And what is your response to that? As a government, we're going to be very thoughtful about any further steps that need to be taken. It remains to be seen if any of these thoughtful steps are going to be taken with Freeland's grandfather, who, by the way, was also a Nazi. He spent the early 1940s as an editor for a Nazi propaganda newspaper praising the SS Galicia, to which you can even find monuments in Freeland's hometown. It's no wonder why war crime investigators are taking issue with Canada. Canada is where the Nazis are. Canada is the unknown haven for Nazis. Everybody knows about Argentina, but nobody knows about Canada.
Decades of the Canadian government harboring neo-Nazis, trying to act like nothing out of the ordinary is going on. And oh, so many of them just happen to be Ukrainian. Perhaps it's not all just Russian propaganda after all. Well, we heard from a Russian historian who says Nazi ideology has been hiding in plain sight in Canada since the 1940s after the country's leaders embraced fascists on the run. Trudeau, the Speaker of the Canadian Parliament, the German ambassador and other officials, they've known what it was all about. In fact, Canada, as the Canadian press and historians wrote about after the Second World War, openly accepted many former Nazis. 9,000 people from the SS Galicia moved to Canada after the Second World War. By comparison, Canada had only accepted 5,000 Holocaust victims who fled the Nazi regime between 1939 and 1945. And 9,000 Nazi criminals were taken in immediately after the war? How can this be assessed? These really were bloody beasts that murdered children, women and the elderly. It is clear that Canadian society was already infected in many ways by this justification of Nazism, and it was impossible not to know about it. At least those who invited and participated in organizing this events naturally knew everything perfectly well. And the German ambassador is obliged to know the history of Germany and is obliged to know, as it seems to me, the participation of certain Nazi formations in the Second World War. If this person does not know, then the question arises about his competence in the position he holds. Much more news coming up in about 30 minutes' time. In the meantime, be sure to visit our website, rt.com, for the very latest news and updates. Bye-bye.